Thanks, Jeanette, for reading God's Word for us this morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus, and it's so good to see each one of you here uh, this morning. Again, like Jeanette says, especially if you're uh, here for the first time, we're so glad uh, that you came and that you're with us. Um, we're just delighted to have you here and hope that you feel very warmly uh, welcomed in this space. Um, before we uh, spend a little time looking at this text this morning, I want to just pause and pray and, and ask for God's help in understanding Uh, his word, and um, let's pause and do that now. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have given us this treasure, which is your word, um, that you have not uh, remained silent, but that you have spoken, and that you continue to speak um, through your word and by your spirit. And so we ask that as we look at this uh, passage together, um, that you would really open it um, to us, um, that we'd be able to understand um, how you're speaking Um, to us in your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, this morning I want to start off by doing something a little bit different. This is not how I usually start, but uh, I want to have a little participation from all of you. Um, Don't worry, this won't be hard. Uh, But I want to just uh, do a little fill-in-the-blank exercise. And so um, I'm going to give us some phrases, and then I just I want you all to to fill in the blank. I I think these are all pretty easy. Uh, I think you'll be able to get them. So so not don't don't worry. Um, But just want to kind of engage us here at the beginning with a little little fill-in-the-blank in case you were up late watching the Olympics last night. to, to have you here uh, fully engaged at the beginning. So, um, first one is this. So, easy. Roses are red, violets are blue, right? Okay, actually, aren't violets violet? I, I don't know. Maybe they are blue. Uh, another one, so fill in the blank. Uh, there are only two things certain in life, uh, death and taxes, right? Okay, unfortunately, yes, both those are true. Um, and then the one last one here, um, promises, fill in the blank, promises are made to be broken, isn't it sad? Promises are made to be broken. I mean, all of us know that, not just as, as a cliche, I think, this morning, right? We know that by experience. Promises are made to be broken. I think every one of us here this morning has experienced the pain of a broken promise or been on the side of, of having broken a promise to someone else. And yet, despite having experienced broken promises, we, we can't help but escape the fact that our lives are, are based on promises. Whether we like it or not, we just can't get away from them, right? And, and whether you're, you consider yourself a Christian or, or not, or you're here because someone brought you, um, I mean, this is, we, we know this is true in our lives, that we, we all bet our lives on promises in some sense, right? Promises anchor us. Um, I mean, when you take a job, for instance, you, you're, you're betting your life on a promise that your employer is going to have money uh, each month to put into your bank account. I mean, there's a promise there. Um, when, when you get married, you're, you're betting your life on the promise that this, this one person is going to forsake all others and be devoted only to you in sickness and health, richer and poor, Right? And, and kids, you know, you're here, you're banking, implicit, you're, you're banking on the promise that your parents are, are going to keep providing for you, keep giving you cereal in the morning, clothes on your back, right? And, and life makes us a lot of promises too, doesn't it? Um, money makes the promise of comfort, of fulfillment, of security. Sex makes a promise of, of intimacy, of, of pleasure, identity. Power makes promises of control and prestige, security. And in the ultimate sense, we're all banking on promises about 
the future that we, we don't know about, right? So promises about does God exist or not? Um, is there really life after death or, or does it just stop when our heart stops beating? So what promises are you betting your life on? When the storms of life come, when, when the weather of life starts beating down, what are you holding on to? Stripped of everything else, what would you hold on to? If you lost your spouse or you lost your parents, if you lost your money or your health, sexual intimacy or power, what would you be left holding on to? What promise can you cling to that won't ever break, won't ever waver? Well, the author of the book of Hebrews, which we've been looking at for the past several weeks, shows us that God's promise in Jesus is the only one worth betting on. In Hebrews, this book that we've been studying is, is actually a sermon. So it was written as a sermon. It got written down. It was passed around to the churches. And it was written to a group of struggling Christians who lived just a few decades after Jesus had died and risen from the dead. So when we read the New Testament, we're getting to read the lives of the very first Christians, not who had some big ideas about wanting to start a religion, but who had seen something happen. They had seen Jesus, this person they'd followed around for three years. They'd seen him raised from the dead, and now they're trying to figure out what in the world does that mean. And so what we have in the book of Hebrews is a letter to some of these first Christians. And they're struggling, they're wavering. And this sermon is meant to encourage them. And, and he's kind of building in the sermon to a place, and he's been talking about this idea of high priest. And uh, when he noticed that people weren't paying attention... If you kind of read the book, you realize, at a certain point, he realizes no one's really paying attention to him anymore. And so he stops. And, and last week, if you were with us, you know, he stopped and he gave them a stark warning. He warned them that they may be in danger of falling away. Some of them were faking it and they didn't even know it. And this week continues that idea, but instead of focusing on our role, he focuses on God's role in our rescue. And he encourages them and us that God's promise of rescue is sure It's the only one worth holding on to. It's the only promise that won't ever be broken. There's no better promise than Jesus. There's no better promise than Jesus. And and as we look at these verses in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, we're going to see the foundation of that promise. We're going to see the difficulty of that promise. And then lastly, we'll see the hope of the promise. So the foundation of the promise, the difficulty of it, and then lastly, the hope that comes with that promise. So the foundation of the promise, this is what we see first. And we see it in verses 13 through 18. If you, uh, if you have a Bible with you or grab one of the ones in the pew, I'd love to show you this in the Bible. Also, um, I love the smartphone app, version. If you just go to the app store on your phone, you can download a Bible right there as well. But find Hebrews chapter 6. And if you're using one of the pew Bibles, like Jeanette said, it's page 1004. And listen to what the author says here. I know Jeanette just read it for us, but I want to highlight again some of these first few verses. God is the foundation of this promise. This says, For when God made a promise, verse 13, to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, Abraham, he's talking to you, and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. 
It's a little odd. We'll, we'll, get, we'll talk about that in a moment. What does that mean? So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you and me, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, now there's a lot there in those verses. That's a really compact lot going on. But, but the main thing to know here is that the foundation of the promise is God. Um, but you, you probably knew that all right. It's probably a big surprise we're talking about God. I mean, this is church after all, um, that we're talking about him. But the, the promise is only as good as the one who makes it, right? A promise is only as good as the person making the promise and so what does the author tell us about this God who makes promises? Well, the first thing we see about God is that he actually makes promises in the first place. I know we've been saying God makes promises, God makes promises, but have you actually stopped to think about how incredible that is? That the God that is the God of the Bible actually makes promises to us. I mean, right, God actually puts himself, in a sense, in, in obligation, in debt to us. Because if you make a promise to someone, if I make a promise, you know, we're going to have, uh, let's have coffee next Tuesday. Now I'm, I'm obligated to you. I've promised to be there at 2 o'clock next Tuesday to have coffee with you. I'm now obligated. I'm in your debt. I've placed an obligation. Before I didn't owe you anything. Now I owe you my time and my, you know, and a cup of coffee. When we make a promise to someone, we, we put ourselves in obligation to them. Can you, God does that to us. He says, I'm promising these things, and he places us in his obligation. That's a, that's a phenomenal that God would do that for us as creatures. I mean, he didn't owe us anything, and he's chosen to make promises to us, to obligate himself to do things for us. It's amazing. Now, the fact that God would make promises is incredible, but, but how do we know that he'll keep them, Right? I mean, anyone can make a promise. It's keeping the promise that's the hard part. I mean, one of our uh, pastors on staff, he's a little bit of a curmudgeon kind of old guy, uh, Warren Trainer. some of you might know him. But when I got engaged, uh, when I got engaged, he said to me, this is, this is classic Warren, he said, well, Bill, any old fool can get married. It's staying married that's the trick. Um, so anyone can make promises. It's keeping them. That's, that's the hard part, right? So how do we know that God will keep his promise? What assurance can he give us? Well, the, the text says here that he gives us an oath. So verse 13 says, when God swears on himself, when, when God makes his promise to Abraham, and we'll get more on what that was all about in just a second, but he confirmed the promise with an oath. He swore by himself. Now, this idea of swearing by yourself or, or making a promise with an oath, that sounds a little strange to us, right? But in the cultural context of the ancient Near East, when um, this promise was being made, uh, this is how you solidified a contract. This is how you signed the document and said you obligated yourself by making an oath. You'd swear an oath by someone greater or something greater than yourself. And, and we kind of still do this in our cultural context today, don't we? When you really want to convince someone that you're, you're telling the truth, you say, well, well, I swear on a stack of Bibles, or, or I, swear by, I swear to God, or I swear on my mother's grave, right? We have this kind of leftover uh, kind of cliche phrasing that we still use. And, and, but most of the time, now when we really want to make a promise, sure, we make a, a contract, right? We, we get a legal document um, that's put together. In fact, I, I know one attorney I know describes what his work is as an attorney as helping people make and keep 
promises. I, I like that. Helping people make and keep promises. See, when we enter into a contract, we are essentially saying, I swear by the power of the legal system to lock me up if I don't do what I say, um, that I'll do what I'm going to do. And so when God wants to make a promise, what can he swear by but himself? I mean, if, if God is truly God, then, then there's nothing greater. So there's nothing more permanent, nothing more sacred than him. And so he swears by himself. But, but just because there's nothing greater than God for him to swear by doesn't automatically make him trustworthy, does it? And how do we know he's going to keep his word? What if God is a God who changes his mind? What if a God is a God who doesn't do what he says he's going to do. I think this is where this passage signs because you see the, the, the author reminds us that God's character is always consistent. He reminds us that God is unchanging and that he never lies. God is always consistent with his character. He always acts in consistency with who he is. Now, if you've even read the Bible a little bit or maybe taken a, a you know, Bible's literature class at college or philosophy class, you might be thinking, now isn't the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, doesn't it seem like he changes? Like God in the Old Testament is kind of this wrathful, vengeful God, and then you know, Jesus, God in the New Testament, is this kind, loving, forgiving God. And, and it's easy, if you, if you do read the Bible at kind of a cursory level, to sort of get this picture that, that God does change through time. But if you really study the text carefully, if you follow the story all the way through Genesis to Revelation, what you see is that God always has been and always will be a God of incredible grace and mercy and unfailing love who by no means lets injustice and injustice and evil go unpunished. And we see this with crystal clarity in both the Old and the New Testaments. You see, the God who has no beginning and no end has never and will never change. And it's even clearer a few chapters later in the book of Hebrews, when you get to chapter 13, the author says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's not going to change his mind. His promise is sure. But, but not only does God not change, God cannot lie. God cannot lie. Now, you might be thinking, wait, if God's God, can't, can't God just do anything that he wants? I mean, isn't that what it is to be God, being able to do whatever you want to do? Well, actually, no. He can't. It, it almost sounds like heresy. If you've been around the church for a long time, God can't do something. But, but this text is crystal clear. Verse 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for him to lie. Now, it's likely that your friends or your kids or your parents, your boss, your coworkers, it's likely that they will lie to you at some point in time. But it's impossible for God to lie to you. It's impossible for God to lie to you. When God wanted to show us how serious he was about his promise, he, he did so by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for him to lie that's his, the promise that he made and the oath. So there's two unchangeable things. his promise and his oath, and it's impossible for him to lie in either one. But we still find it difficult to trust, don't we? What promise of God is it difficult for you to believe? What promise is it hard for you to really think, God, is that really true? 
Maybe it's the promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. Or maybe it's the promise that he really is working all things together for good for those who love him and called, are called according to his purpose. I, mean, I know some of your stories. I know the pain that some of you are experiencing. I know that's a hard promise to believe sometimes. Maybe it's the promise that, that God really does know your needs and is going to provide for you. Again, I know your stories. I know that's a hard promise to believe sometimes. But the rub is that that when we don't trust God, it's not as though we sort of end up not trusting anything. We just transfer that trust, that belief to something else. So when we're not trusting God for these things, we're we're just trusting something else. We're trusting ourselves or we're we're trusting our, our money or we're trusting power, or we're trusting our spouse, or our job. But but here's the thing. The Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians, he's writing a letter to another one of these early churches, just trying to figure it out. What does it mean to follow Jesus? He writes to them these words. I think this is such great comfort to us. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. There's no better promise than him. All of the stunning promises of the Old and New Testament are for you in the person of Jesus. They all find their ultimate resolution in him. But sometimes we don't see it, do we? Right? Sometimes we're in the midst of this stuff and it seems hard and we don't see it. It seems like God has lied. It seems like he's changed his mind. And that brings us to our next point, the difficulty of the promise. And this is where the example of Abraham comes in. Abraham shows up here kind of in the middle of, of this uh, passage. And, and Abraham, all throughout the Bible, and particularly in the book of Hebrews, is held up as kind of this, this prime example of what it means to trust God, to have faith in God, to, to trust in God's promise. But this doesn't mean that his life was without difficulty. Actually, far from it. Um, if you know any of the story of Abraham, uh, you know that God, when he first met Abraham, when God first promised Abraham, Abraham was 75 years old. So he's a pretty old guy. His wife also is pretty old. They have no kids, and God promises him a son. In fact, he promises not just a son, but that Abraham is going to be the father of many So how long did Abraham wait for God to come through? 25 years passed from the time that God makes the promise to the time that they have a son. And it's just one son. It's not multitudes. It's just one. I think sometimes when we're reading through the Old Testament, we we just turn pages pretty quick and realize there's decades passing sometimes between one thing that happens. It's just a turn of a page for us, but it's decades, 25 years, and one son. Now, this may seem like a terrible thing for a pastor to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. When you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, it seems like God over-promises and underdelivers sometimes for hundreds or even thousands of years. And maybe you feel like that in your life right now. 
Now, now God does come through. He's always faithful. He always does. He's faithful to his promise. And Abraham's descendants now, I mean, you look at how he's fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Abraham's descendants are the entire Jewish race. Jesus himself was one of his great, great grandchildren. And, And Paul says that those who have faith in Christ, and there are now Christians all over the globe, are children of Abraham. So yes, God has come through, and in ways far greater than what Abraham could have ever imagined. But Abraham didn't see any of that. He got one son after 25 years of waiting. I have trouble waiting for 25 seconds for stuff. He waited 25 years. But that's how God works, isn't it? We often only receive a taste of the promise. And so sometimes it's really difficult to trust A few chapters later, the preacher of the book of Hebrews returns to Abraham, and he says this. He says that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Still, Abraham never gave up waiting. But again, Abraham was far from perfect. Again, if if you haven't read Abraham's story, I'd encourage you to go back to Genesis, kind of the middle of the book, and just read some of his story. And this guy is not perfect, far from it. Um, He lies about his wife being his sister twice, actually, in order to save his own skin. Um, And then, you know, when God hasn't fulfilled the promise to give him a son, he actually gets his uh, servant pregnant. And and you thought your marriage had issues. Uh, You know, you're uh, you're probably not dealing with any of that stuff. Um, Abraham is far from perfect. And yet, he's held up at this example of believing God's promise. And in fact, the specific story that's being referenced here in Hebrews chapter 6 takes place in Genesis 22. And it's this crazy story in the Old Testament when God actually asks Abraham to take this one son that he's given him, Isaac, and actually sacrifice him. I mean, it's crazy that God would ask him to do that. And, and it's actually even crazier when you think about it. I, now even having a daughter, I'm just blown away. Abraham's actually willing to go through with it. And he puts God's promise on the altar, his son, his only son. And he had such faith that God would fulfill his promise that he knew that even if, if he killed Isaac, God could raise him from the dead. But God stops the whole thing. Abraham passes the test. You see, God's promises always require patience. They always require patience. Really, all promises require patience, don't they? I mean, if the thing that was being promised was right there, you wouldn't need the promise. It would just be there. Promises require patience. The trouble is, is that we're not very good at waiting. Um, we've been conditioned in a world of, of fast food, of uh, Amazon Prime, two-day shipping, um, of, of Amazon Instant Video. I mean, I don't wait for anything. I don't even drive to the video store. If I want to watch a movie, it's like I run it on Amazon and it's there like that. We don't wait for anything anymore. And there's some great things about that. But we're just not people who are conditioned to wait for stuff. We assume that anything worth having must be had at once. I get frustrated with the two-day shipping sometimes. I, I want it now. <laughs> And some of you have been waiting for what seems like a really long time. But what are you going to hold on to? You see, God's timing is rarely ours. 
And, and a lot of times we don't understand what in the world he's doing. And you actually, you may never understand. God doesn't always tell us all of our story. We don't always know what he's up to. But the question is, is what else, who else are you going to hold on to? You see, in our mindset, suffering seems so antithetical to the promises of God, doesn't it? But, but if you walk with Jesus long enough, he's going to ask you to do something or to face something that seems so hard, something that seems so unbearable, so impossible. And the question is, is what are you going to hold on to in those moments? One of my favorite pictures of trust actually comes in, in one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia books, the, the Silver Chair. If you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a fantasy uh, series for, for children, adults as well, um, similar to like the, the, the Hobbit or Harry Potter. Um, and Aslan, the great lion king of Narnia, um, he's sort of the, the Christ figure in the story, not unlike a, a Dumbledore or a Gandalf. And, and in the book, The Silver Chair, the children are on this quest to find a lost prince, and Aslan told them how, and, and he gave them four signs that they must remember and obey. And at this point in the story, they've all gotten through the first three signs when they stumble on a young knight. And the knight tells him, he says, I'm under this enchantment, and, and for one hour every day I lose myself and I turn vicious, and if I'm not tied up, I will destroy you. And so he makes the children promise that no matter what he says, they will not untie him. And so the hour comes, and the night is now changed, and he swears now in his changed state that he's good. And it's the other him, the, the, the one, the other 23 hours a day that's evil, that's under the enchantment, that this one is the really sane one who needs to be released, and he begs the children, untie me, let me go. And so now they're conflicted. Which one is telling the truth? But there's no way they're going to untie him. Until suddenly the young man shouts, in the name of Aslan, set me free. That was the fourth sign. Aslan basically said, the first one who says, do something in my name, trust that person. And so now they're really conflicted. How could Aslan know about this man who's quite possibly a monster? Is he, is he really trustworthy? We could be devoured. And so they start arguing together and say, they say, oh, if I only knew, said Jill. And then one of the other characters says, I think we do know, said Puddleglum. Do you think everything will come out right if we untie him? Well, I don't know about that, said Puddleglum. You see, Aslan didn't tell us what would happen. He only told us what to do. That fellow might be the death of us once he's up, but that doesn't let us off trusting Aslan. But that doesn't let us off trusting Aslan. I love that. In fear and in struggle, they, they untie him, but they trust. You see, they knew Aslan had never been wrong, and he had never let them down. And so even in this moment when they're terrified and they're scared, they trust him. And even though it's, it's never been easy, what else could they hold on to? You see, God's promises are unchanging. But that doesn't make trusting them easy. But God's promises do give us hope. So what's the hope of the promise? Look again if you have your Bible open at verse 19 and 20. The preacher says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope 
that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, we have a hope, and the author calls it a sure and a steadfast anchor that goes beyond the curtain. So, so what does that mean? What does it mean? What's this idea of going beyond the curtain into this inner place? Well, in the Jewish temple, if you were to go back in time, first century Jewish temple, in the temple there was a room in the back of the temple, and it was separated from everything else by a thick curtain. It was where the presence of God dwelled, and the curtain separated the presence of God from the people of God. But, and this is the whole point of all this high priest stuff, Jesus has made a way for the presence of God to dwell with his people. This is the great hope that we have. You see, when we have God's presence, even if we have nothing else, we have everything. But if you have all of creation and you don't have God's presence, you have nothing You see, our great hope is God himself. God is the gospel. He is the good news that we get to be in his presence, that we get to love and enjoy him forever. His presence is our great hope. Now, hope is not just wistful thinking. Hope is not wish fulfillment. Hope is a certain future based on a past event. The author is saying, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have more than a promise. We actually have a guaranteed promise. God didn't just give us his word. He gave us his son as a guarantee. You see, there's only one way to know if there's life after death, right? To actually have someone to die and come back and tell us. And in Jesus, we have that person who has died and who's been raised to life again. Someone has come back. Jesus did, and so we have hope. In his fantastic book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Pastor Tim Keller writes this. He says, human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. Let let me read that again. Human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. And and then Tim goes on to tell a story right after this. He says, two men were captured and thrown into a dungeon. And just before they went into prison, one man discovered that his wife and child were dead. And the other learned that his wife and child were alive and waiting for him. In the first couple years of the imprisonment, the first man just wasted away, curled up, and died. But the other man endured, stayed strong, and walked out a free man ten years later. And Keller says the point is, these two men experienced the very same circumstances but responded differently because while they had experienced the same present, they had their minds set on very different futures. It was the future that determined how they handled the present. God's promises, what he's promised to do in the future, those are a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul in times of doubt, in times of suffering, in times of struggle. The author isn't saying just somehow trust more, will yourself to believe and and leave doubt behind. No, there's this language of refuge in the text. He's saying escape better, run away better, run to Jesus, run to him for refuge. You see, Jesus is the ultimate resource for our faith. He is the forerunner, the text says, the forerunner who goes before us 
And, and that little word forerunner is only used in the New Testament here. It's only used once in the entire Bible. But elsewhere in Greek literature, it's used to describe a boat, a small boat that goes ahead of a large ship during a storm into a harbor. And the little small boat would lay the anchor in the harbor so that the ship, the larger ship, was secured and would be guaranteed of making a safe passage into the harbor. That's what Jesus has done for you and me. He's gone before us into God's presence, so now that we can be assured that we can follow him into God's presence as well. So where is your hope? Is it in you? Or is it in the forerunner who's gone before you? You see, Christian hope isn't based on your strength and will. Such good news. It's not based on your strength and your will, but it's based on God's strength and his sovereign will. You see, a strong faith in a weak object is useless, but even a weak faith, even a weak hope in a strong object can rescue you. I mean, think about this in, in the context of something we, we probably have all done at least once in our life, which is to jump on a plane and fly somewhere. Now, you can get on that plane. Some of you hate flying. Uh, some of you really enjoy it. I, I, tend to, I like flying. Um, but some of you, you get on that plane and you're terrified. But if you're on the plane, it doesn't matter if you're confident or fearful when you get on the plane. Your level of confidence or fear does not affect the safety of your flight. It's all about the skill of the crew and the maintenance team on that plane. You can have all the confidence in the world, but if your pilot's terrible, it's not going to do you any good. You can get on that plane and be utterly terrified, but if you've got a good pilot, you're going to be just fine. See, it's the strength of the object of your faith that makes all the difference. Some of you may be thinking, I just don't have it. My, my faith, my hope is so weak. It's okay if it's in the right object. So powerful was this image of the anchor to these first Christians that they regularly used it as a symbol on their graves. I think I have a picture of it here for you. All over the catacombs in Rome, do you see the anchor on there? All over the catacombs in Rome on the graves of early Christians is the symbol of an anchor. You see, these Christians died, but they did not die without hope. No, they died in hope. The hope which is a steadfast anchor for their souls. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have sent your son Jesus who died, who rose again from the dead so that he might go before us into your presence so that we can now become your people who are enjoying your presence. Help us to cling to the steadfast anchor of our soul. We pray this in Jesus' name.